0: hello and welcome back to alpaca my bags where we discuss all things travel from traveling anecdotes to tourism controversy so today we're talking about dark tourism um, and specifically holocaust tourism and we're going to use the example of auschwitz concentration camp it sounds heavy and that's because it is but this concentration camp draws millions of tourists every year and so it's definitely worth discussing. On the show today I have my dear friend Sheer. Welcome. Hi Erin. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself like what tell us the most memorable trip you've ever been on in your life.
1: Oh wow that's such a that's a big one. I'll talk about my last trip to Colombia. You love talking about I Columbia. love talking about Colombia. Erin knows I'm the happiest when I speak Spanish. And going to Colombia was my first time in South America. Um, so that was pretty exciting for me. And I did uh, a month there, uh, mostly by myself. My friend came to visit me for like a week. But aside from that, it was just me figuring out traveling there and speaking so much Spanish, um, and uh, yeah. Colombia is a very up-and-coming destination, I feel. For sure, for sure.
0: I know this from browsing Instagram. Yeah, everyone you know
1: goes there now, don't they? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah.
0: There's also a hot tip to listeners who are located in Canada. I see a lot of flight deals mm. to Colombia for like $400 return. So if you're looking for a cheap trip, maybe that's your Columbia's next Colombia is
1: amazing, so yeah.
0: Um, And so for the context of this episode, what is your personal relationship to the Holocaust and or Holocaust tourism?
1: So my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, She was uh, in Auschwitz with her sister for two years. And when I was in grade 11, I went with the Canadian delegation, the Toronto Canadian delegation, uh, to the March of the Living. Uh, So the March of the Living is uh, basically a group of people from all around the world who gather during the time of Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is around April or May every year, uh, to walk the route from Birkenau to Auschwitz. So Birkenau was the uh, war camp and Auschwitz was was the the death camp. It's a three kilometer walk. And that was what was called the uh, death march. Um, so, you know, to kind of flip it on its head and and commemorate and kind of remember that um, the people who were prosecuted in the Holocaust are still around uh, and that the Nazis didn't win. Uh, young people from all over the world come together uh, and do that walk. Uh, so I was lucky enough to go there uh, and do that and kind of pay tribute to my grandmother and her family uh that was perished in the holocaust Mm -hmm. yeah um would you say it's mostly
0: jewish people who do the march or non-jewish people as well
1: i would say it's mostly jewish people but there's Mm -hmm. definitely delegations from all sects um for sure
0: for more contextualization i'm going to explain what dark tourism is Um, It is a term that was coined in 1996 to describe travel to places which are historically associated with death and tragedy. So some of the most well-known dark tourism locations include Ground Zero in New York City, the killing fields in Cambodia, sites of battle in Europe, and Japan's Fukushima. Um, So today we are going to discuss the controversy around dark tourism, whether it's okay, whether it's warranted to take part in it. I guess the main question we have is whether it can be a good thing, a constructive educational tool, or whether it commodifies human suffering, which is one of the main forms of criticism that this tourism movement has had. It's rumored that some local businesses, for example, have begun arranging tourist vans and selling tickets as soon as they hear that someone is dying in Bali because they have these like very unique death funerals. Um, so that's one example of how dark tourism has been coined as controversial. All right. So have we ourselves partaken in dark tourism? I myself can say I absolutely have. In fact, I have many a time. Um, I'd actually admit that I, I have like an actual interest in dark tourism. But I think that my interest in dark tourism has always been driven by a need to know um, and also to learn, but also to experience empathy because I find, like, I go to these sites, like, for example, the killing fields in Cambodia and Auschwitz, I go to these places and I'm bawling the entire time because it's emotionally exhausting to see these places, like, in real life. And so sometimes I wonder, like, why that's something I actively pursue when I'm traveling, but I think it's because it, it's like a reality check in a sense you're being exposed to a reality that like in our lives here in Canada, we're not often exposed to. So I'd say that's, that's my relationship with dark tourism. How about you? Have you ever actively pursued dark tourism?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think I'm very similarly to you uh, actively pursue it. I think it's, it's kind of part of the process of educating yourself about the place to which you're going. Uh, I think, you know, being able to to visit those places and and experience the way in which history kind of unfolded in those places is very important as a tourist and as a conscientious tourist
0: absolutely and I find that the experience of going to those places is very different than like reading about them Mm -hmm. or learning about them in school I know that like visiting Auschwitz there was no way to prepare for that. Like I thought that I knew a lot about the Second World War and about the concentration camps, but visiting it was completely different. It just has a different impact to actually see it like in the flesh. So as we said, today's uh, discussion is going to revolve around Auschwitz-Birkenau, which is found in Poland. So this is an infamous concentration camp that operated throughout the Second World War to undertake the Nazis' final solution to the Jewish question. So over a period of just under three years, approximately 1.1 million people were killed in the camp's gas chambers. 90% of those people were Jewish. Auschwitz played an integral role in the Nazi's genocide of the European Jewish population. In 1955, an exhibition opened at the site, drawing the first visitors to the camp. And in 1979, Auschwitz was named a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. So that's the history of Auschwitz. I have visited Auschwitz, you have visited Auschwitz. Let's just give our like basic impressions of our experiences there. What was it like for you?
1: Yeah, so I visited Auschwitz as part of a whole week in Poland visiting concentration camps. Mm. Um, and I think Auschwitz was potentially the last concentration camp that we visited And the very interesting thing is obviously Auschwitz was the biggest concentration camp in Poland. And I think what struck me the most is that it was the most like a museum, Mm. which was very different than the other concentration camps. Uh, I remember being very, very affected by Majdanek, which can actually, uh, it could basically if you plug everything back together, it could be fully functional again. Really? Yeah, yeah. And I remember arriving in Auschwitz and the contrast between Majdanek and Auschwitz is that Auschwitz is is very much set up as a museum. Uh, And I think you've had kind of, did you feel the same way? It's very much like Mm -hmm. you see the thousands of glasses and shoes and and Mm -hmm. hair and and i found it to be i felt very removed when i first um when i first arrived there and that obviously had to do with the fact that it was a very very emotionally charged week Mm -hmm. um but it took me a while to get into it because of i guess how massive it is uh and how i mean well set up it is for sure um, I found that that interesting, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my trip to auschwitz
0: was it was the only uh death camp I'd ever been to, mm-hmm. and because I had read so much literature, like accounts of people surviving Auschwitz and et cetera, I think it was like emotionally charged for me because to actually see this place, yeah, in reality, it was just like giving life to something that I had read so much about, but you're right in that it's definitely a very a touristic experience in the sense that like you have a tour guide, they're talking to you the whole time. You don't necessarily have the time, like especially as someone who's non-Jewish and visiting to really sit back and contemplate because the whole time, like people are talking to you. And so I didn't find like a lot of moments to sit in introspection Mm -hmm. per se, but I do remember it being a difficult day and feeling very drained at the end. But it was a worth visiting. I would tell anyone who's going to Poland that they should just for the learning experience. But here's a lowdown on tourism at Auschwitz because I think it's really interesting to look at how tourism has developed there. So approximately one million visitors annually visit Auschwitz. Um, and that's according to their memorial website. Uh, Auschwitz has almost 300 licensed guides educators, they're called. Um, they're specially trained for this purpose by the International Center for Education about Auschwitz and the Holocaust. And they speak a total of 19 languages. And so the point of this is to help visitors to get to know the history of Auschwitz. No other museum in the world offers this kind of service. And I must say, like in my experience, that was one of the most incredible like tours that I had in the sense that I felt that the Tour guide was extremely knowledgeable and very good at explaining, but also emphasizing the importance of like understanding this history in the context of the war and genocide. So it just it felt like a really good tour. I was impressed. I remember thinking that visits to Auschwitz are definitely intended to be educational, and this is why the guided tour is encouraged. And the bulk of visitors to the camp are educational school tours. So while there are two-hour guided tours available, you can actually visit Auschwitz on a one- or two-day study tour with a guide, which is in which is meant to be an in-depth educational visit. And I think that's really interesting. I would love to speak with someone who's actually done, like, a one- or two-day mm-hmm. educational visit. Um, so the reality is that Auschwitz is definitely a tourist destination. Many people travel to Poland to see it specifically. I like to do TripAdvisor research because I find it really interesting to read what people say about their experiences. Most people seem to write about it, write about their experience as an educational one. Um, so they describe it as difficult, chilling, not an enjoyable day, but an important day. One user states that the place has been maintained with dignity and solemnity. How do you say solemnity? Solemnity. I think people know what I mean. (laughs) This user describes an emotion in the camp that is not explainable. Other users describe their experience there as moving, traumatic, and emotionally draining. Another user, interestingly, describes her experience as very strange. She said that it seems like a lot of other people were not feeling the same sorrow and sadness. One young couple were snapping photos of each other smiling between the fences and in front of the buildings as if it meant nothing. People were taking photos of the victim's shoes and personal items. I saw selfies in front of gates and smiling faces in front of the gas chamber. It lacked respect, dignity, peace, reflection, mourning, and understanding. I thought this was a really interesting review. I actually don't remember seeing a lot of people taking photos when I was there.
1: Do you remember people taking photos? I don't I don't remember people taking photos in Auschwitz. People took photos of the gate, uh, and mm-hmm. I remember I mean, I took a photo of my grandmother's cabin. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was one of those things that, you know, to remember that I was there to remember what I saw, um it wasn't so much. I didn't see anyone taking selfies, but it was <laughs> 2009. Right. So so this is pre-age of the like instant
0: photo taking. Mm-hmm. So lots of people complain that the site lacks respect. Um, a lot of users complain of long ticket lines, disorganization. Other people complain that they have to pay to use the bathroom which I actually think is silly because you have to pay to use the bathroom like everywhere Everywhere in Europe. Europe. (laughs) So, yeah, you want a clean bathroom. That's the case. Um, A lot of people argue that it's been commercialized and that this takes away the dignity of the camp's victims. What would you think on that? I never thought about it
1: that way myself. It's interesting, right, because there's two sides. Mm -hmm. Um, On the one hand the only way to keep the education going is to commercialize it. I mean, these guys obviously don't work for free, and for them to do a good job, they need the proper education and the proper training. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, again, I spoke to the fact that it very much feels like a museum, especially when you walk in. I remember, you know, the walk from Auschwitz to Birkenau and kind of seeing the more um, authentic cabins was a lot more of, of a personal experience as opposed to seeing the massive boxes of of items. Um, but, I mean, I think...
0: I myself didn't find, the, find it commercialized. Mm-hmm. Like, in my experience, I don't remember thinking that.
1: I mean, it's not all. like there is a, a gift shop there.
0: No. I.
1: Well, there might be now. Okay. I read
0: about there being some sort of a bookshop. Okay. But that makes sense in the context of, like, an educational right. visit. Right. Of course, they'd be selling books. So, I, yeah, it's an interesting claim to make that, like, they've commercialized it so far that it takes away the dignity of mm-hmm. victims. And you're right. I think it's, it's difficult to... How else... Uh, maybe the best way to to portray dignity to those victims is to ensure that people continue to learn about it.
1: Mm-hmm. And the the upkeep of the camp, I mean obviously it's been I'm really bad over on that. 60 80 years. years, 80 years yeah. since the Holocaust, you know. The items they have to yeah. <laughs> they have to to upkeep it somehow and and upkeep costs money.
0: So, Auschwitz selfies have garnered criticism and lots of arguments, not even just selfies, like arguments about people taking photos in general at the camp. This argument has come up for other sites of dark tourism as well, including Ground Zero in New York. Um, but I'm going to bring up a specific example because this one was like all over the news when it happened. So, in 2014, a young woman named Brianna Mitchell. Uh, she was from Alabama posted to Twitter a selfie of herself smiling at Auschwitz with this caption selfie in the Auschwitz concentration camp. Um, and this to me was like the icing on the cake because it wasn't even just the caption. It was the fact that the caption ended with a happy face emoji She needs to up her caption game. Yes, I think so. (laughs) After massive internet backlash and news coverage, the teen explained herself. Um, She shared that her father was a history buff, and the Holocaust was the last historical event that she studied with him before he passed away a year prior to her visit to Auschwitz. Um, So her argument was that her visit to Auschwitz had sentimental meaning, and the image was meant to be a tribute to her father. What do you think about this?
1: She didn't, that wasn't mentioned in the caption. No. It really wasn't. Um, context is everything. Context is everything. I mean, uh, it's, it's one of those things we're used to taking pictures of ourselves and we're used to taking pictures of ourselves smiling. So you could, always, you could almost say, oh, this was just a reflex. But the fact that you were thinking of doing that in the first place, completely you know takes away from from the context of of where you are Mm -hmm. you know there's a difference between taking a picture of the gate or of the scenery around you Mm -hmm. um but putting yourself into the photo has this this sort of of this um what's the word i'm looking for um
0: it shifts the attention from like Auschwitz to her yes exactly is what I feel mm-hmm. and also like to me it was also the act of sharing like it's one thing to take a selfie of yourself smiling in Auschwitz okay like we're all we all have agency to do whatever we want or feel is appropriate but then to share it mm-hmm like, I could understand sending it to your family, like, maybe to your mother or your siblings or to your friends and saying, like, here I am, like, I'm at Auschwitz where, where Dad and I um, had talked about. But then to share it, like, publicly on Twitter mm-hmm. with that caption with zero context felt... It just felt very cold to me. Very and disrespectful, yeah. Like, personally, I'm uncomfortable with a smiling selfie at Auschwitz being shared all over the internet. So there's been a lot of discussion about this since this event. Um, Author Daniel P. Reynolds wrote a book titled Postcards from Auschwitz, Holocaust Tourism and the Meaning of Remembrance. So in this book, he makes an argument in defense of Auschwitz selfies. um, And he makes like a pretty solid argument. He states that taking selfies at Auschwitz can stand in contrast to fixed postcards with ready-made images and lack of personality. Just as the Nazis were bent on erasing people's individuality, taking selfies at a former death camp can feel like a reclamation of one's identity. If official postcards erase the tourist, selfies reclaim the visitor's presence at the memorial. There is an act of agency, of immediacy to a place that has for so many decades been heavily mediated by others. What do you think about this angle?
1: I think it's definitely interesting, and he's definitely making a point that's worth considering. I almost kind of think about it in the same way as the March of the Living Mm -hmm. and reclaiming the idea of, We're still here. We're still educating ourselves. We haven't forgotten. Um, But again, it's weird, right? Because there's a difference between... Don't you think that there's almost a difference between taking a selfie of you smiling? You're not going to take a selfie of yourself crying Mm. and post that to to the internet because that's Mm -hmm. also putting yourself and your own... We're grappling with with the with what you are um, experiencing with with what you are experiencing, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's very personal. And I don't think it has necessarily a place in in social media. Mm-hmm. But I think that for some reason, and I and I'm wondering about your thoughts on this. There's a difference between the selfie and the photo of I am here, you know, my back to to me looking at this. I don't know why. Mm. Do you see what I mean? I do, yeah. And I don't know why I feel this way. And I'm not the type of person to post um, uh, that kind of stuff to social media. But I remember even when... Um, My ex and I were in uh, Munich, Mm -hmm. Um, and during the Munich Olympics, uh, there was a terrorist attack, and tens of Israeli Olympians were murdered. And my ex took a picture of me looking at the, um, what do you call it, like the commemoration?
0: The memorial. The
1: memorial, Yeah. yeah. So... You know, I didn't know the photo was taken or whatever, but it's one of those things like, okay, here I am reckoning with this moment. Mm -hmm. And whenever I look at that picture, I remember, it kind of helps me remember the moment Mm -hmm. and the solemnity of it yeah
0: because you're you're portraying yourself in that image whether it's calculated or not Mm -hmm. you're portraying a sense of introspection yeah which you don't get out of a smiling selfie Mm -hmm. and i actually think there is a more of a movement now in social media where at least some of the influencers that i follow have been more willing to portray moments of sadness um so i've seen like one particular influencer she's canadian has posted videos of herself crying To her Instagram story, and just saying, Look, like my life isn't always perfect, like it might seem. And I think that that's a relatively new movement where people are realizing that, like, it's okay to portray a spectrum of emotion through social media. It makes us more real, really. Um, So I think, like, it would bother me less if someone posted a selfie of themselves with a tear in their eye versus smiling.
1: I think there's a difference to remember between an influencer posting uh my life is not perfect mm, sure. um, video and here here I am crying yeah. in auschwitz you know do you yeah. know what I mean? yeah, totally. um, but no i i do I do see where that's coming from, and I am still trying to grapple with why it's better. Why a photo from a distance or a photo of you not smiling is is better mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I think, which is I guess what we discussed before is as soon as you put yourself into the equation of something that hasn't happened to you, you mm-hmm. know it's you going to educate yourself about something that you did not take part of um, happened to you know other people.
0: And so you're putting yourself into that history in a way. Yeah. Or you're trying to... Like, if we're talking about it as, like, an act of reclamation, why, like, would I, a non-Jewish person, go to Auschwitz and, like, take this selfie and try to reclaim the space when I have no personal connection to the Mm -hmm. space at all? Like, I'm not Jewish. I grew up in Canada. None of my family members were in concentration camps. And so... It just doesn't feel right. And so that begs the question, like, is it more appropriate if you do have that historical connection or emotional connection or familial connection to that place to take whatever photo you want?
1: I think, so, it's a very interesting question because I don't feel comfortable saying that, you know, I own the memory of the Holocaust in a more significant way than another member of you know, the human race or the memory of genocide in general. I will say though that from a very personal perspective, I would, I mean, again, I was in Auschwitz in 2009, but I was in Dachau in Germany in 2013. Uh, I was traveling with, like, a digital camera, though. So, again, <laughs> the immediacy of photos wasn't as prevalent, but in a way, I wonder, I mean, my... So, it was my maternal grandmother who was in the Holocaust, and my mom hasn't been for- fortunate or, or you know, uh, she hasn't had the opportunity to go and visit the concentration camps yet. Um but, um, I think that I would be very much inclined to send her a photo of me in Auschwitz in Dachau, and you know just just to connote like I am here hmm. i there's remember yeah, there's yeah. exactly, but I don't com- feel comfortable saying. I am more entitled to take a selfie at Auschwitz than you are.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think, like, what it boils down to is everyone's perception of what it, like, personal perception of what it means to be respectful. And also, like, and I've said this before in other episodes, like, I really believe that when we travel, we we should self-examine our intent, Mm -hmm. So like before I went to Auschwitz, I knew why I was going. It was because I had historical interest and I, I wanted to force myself to feel like that empathy by visiting a place. And I don't know if a lot of people do that in the same way. Like, I wonder if there's people that go to Auschwitz without really knowing what Auschwitz was or its historical significance or like how many people died there. It's really hard to say because they say, actually, that like nowadays, younger generations are far less educated mm-hmm. about World War II and the Holocaust.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it has to do with... To me, obviously, there is the immediate connection of my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is also, you know, on a global scale, I mean, there are very, very few survivors left. So the immediacy of, oh, yeah, I actually know a Holocaust survivor, way fewer people can say that. And I think I think that that has a lot to do with it. And, you know, the farther away we get from, from the Holocaust, I think the less educated we can expect people to be about it. Mm-hmm. It's almost, you know, to me, hearing about someone who doesn't know much about the Holocaust is a bit of of a shock in a way yeah Yeah, it's very jarring uh but I think you know the farther away we get from it the the more commonplace it's gonna be yeah unfortunately Mm -hmm. and that and knowing that
0: points to why perhaps people do tend to take photos there more because maybe they just know less and it feel they're thinking about like the meaning of that photo less so because they don't they just don't know about the event in the mm-hmm. same way and it's like to no fault of their own i think education systems change their time and like nowadays there are other genocides that are being taught in schools mm-hmm. like for example the cambodian genocide is a more recent event and so maybe they're teaching that more than they teach the holocaust now but when it comes down to it like in the end i think it's always positive for someone to go and visit whether or not they choose to like take photos it, it's pretty hard to visit there and not have a learning experience, right? I would argue. I can't imagine that someone would go there and, like, walk away not knowing anything about the history of the place or, like, the Second World War or the Holocaust. So from that perspective, like, maybe we should just let it fly. Like, it's cool. Take your photos. Just learn something while you do it.
1: That that which is
0: gained trumps that which is deplorable.
1: Yeah, deplorable. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I mean, maybe it's not obviously like this guy that I quoted doesn't think it's deplorable. Mm-hmm. So as with everything, like it's all about perception. And um, But just to bring this back to dark tourism, do you think we can argue that like dark tourism is always exploitation or like has the potential to be exploitation
1: overall? I think that's a... Very interesting question, because especially when you talk about Auschwitz, a lot of Polish people don't want that to be what their what the tourism
0: <laughs> draw to Poland is. yes,
1: yeah, you know, and and i think and I think there is very much something to be said about let's talk this out.
0: Because <laughs> I know that's
1: a tough question. I I don't even know how to answer that question. Yeah, this no, because because in a way So you were asking whether it's exploitation. Whether dark tourism in general can be
0: exploitation. And it's kind of like a tricky question because that's such a broad statement to make because there's so many different types of dark exactly. tourism. Exactly.
1: Like and the first thing the first type of dark tourism that comes to mind uh, sorry to bring Colombia back up again.
0: <laughs> I Told you she loves <laughs> Colombia.
1: But um, very interestingly, some people in Colombia have decided that they can profit greatly from Pablo Escobar tours, and go visit his mansions and his zoo and his quote-unquote prison and people pay good money to go and see that the person who terrorized Colombia and has ruined so many Colombian people's lives yeah is that exploitation I think in a way
0: Totally, but it's also benefiting the country economically. Right, right. So from that sense, like it's kind of an act of reclamation because, like, hey, Pablo Escobar really messed up our country and now we're using him to build an economy.
1: So again, to take it back, of course, to Auschwitz, I think there is a difference between going and visiting a concentration camp for the purpose of education mm-hmm. and... Uh, taking a tour that's that's again sorry to use the word in the question but that's that's exploiting yeah a country's past because mm-hmm. i think that that in a way you could you could classify the pablo escobar tours as dark tourism absolutely yeah so i guess like to wrap things up
0: I do feel that it's possible to visit dark tourism locations in a respectful and educational way. Um, I would argue that it boils down to intention, as I said before, and education. So I feel like as tourists, we have the responsibility to go to these sites with the intent to learn, to practice empathy, and just to be respectful. Actually I have a National Geographic quote from this guy named Robert Reed. He writes, the first thing we should ask ourselves. Are we traveling to a place to heighten our understanding or simply to show off or indulge some morbid curiosity? And I feel like that explains it perfectly. It's all about intent. And if your intentions are good and you take... Like, if your intent is to learn and you take that selfie, at least you've still learned in the end.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that. And I think... I think it's our duty to go and see these places. If we end up visiting a place that has had a very dark history, I think there would be something missing from your experience of of, of the place if you go to Poland and don't visit Auschwitz. That. Yeah. Go to Cambodia and don't visit the killing fields. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and
0: that's interesting you say Cambodia because that, I feel like, made me appreciate Cambodia knowing that history and seeing the killing fields right like on day two that I was in Cambodia really set a sort of tone for the trip where I was filled with this like amazement by Cambodian people to be so gracious and happy and know that so recently they had experienced that kind of trauma it just really like informed the entire trip in a sense and so I think you're right going to Poland like it would be very strange to go and not engage with any kind of like Holocaust tourism at all. Mm -hmm. That said, there's tons to see in Poland besides Holocaust tourism. (laughs) Krakow is an incredible city. Um, I loved Krakow. Did you spend time in Krakow?
1: No, we spent time in Warsaw. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. we didn't go to Krakow. But again, I was on a very different trip and Mm -hmm. I'm definitely due back for for a Poland visit. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: I've thought of some things that we could, like, say are good things to do when you're engaging with dark tourism. So, these are, these are things I wrote down as, like, my little tips. <laughs> <laughs> Contemplating why we want to visit a specific site. And I actually, like, try to do this whenever I travel anywhere, um, this is something I only started doing like recently. I think like it started with maturity and realizing that it's important to do that if you want to be a socially conscious traveler. Um, I always try to research before going somewhere so that like, you go into the experience with some kind of knowledge. Um, I definitely did that before the killing fields. Like I admittedly knew nothing about the Cambodian genocide before I went to Cambodia. Did you? Not really yeah they don't teach it that much here um researching local customs so that we can be respectful um and avoiding exploitative photography and videography whatever like and that boils down to what your perception of exploitation would be but yeah it's worth thinking about that before you go to a place like Auschwitz I would argue All right, so it's been pretty heavy conversation. Let's finish off with something more positive. Um, tell us a story about your travels.
1: Okay. Aaron told me not to talk about Columbia. I did yet. not tell you not to
0: talk. I know you love to. We'll have you back to do a Columbia dedicated episode.
1: Perfect. Thank you. If you ever have me back on here again, you'll be back. To be fair, I actually wrote in my notes for my funny story, dog story, Columbia, but I will not tell this story. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll save it. We'll save it. Um, so I, yeah, so I was in Northern Vietnam uh, and we thought that it would be very easy to just hop on over from Sapa to Laos Turned out to be a way longer and more arduous journey than we had expected. I feel this is always the case in Southeast Asia. For sure. For sure. And the chicken buses and (laughs) the fact. So yeah, we get on this uh, minibus, very optimistic to be getting to Laos by the end of the day. Mm. That, lo and behold, did not happen um we (laughs) ended up uh on this minibus and you know in the meantime uh the driver is picking up motorcycle parts picking up like his friends some groceries some eggs some chickens (laughs) all going on the roof of this minibus so at this point it's like literally two hours within like sapa or like the nearby town (laughs) haven't even left have not even left northern vietnam (laughs) um and then obviously it's it's nighttime 10 hours later we just get to a border town still in vietnam Uh. um we're like okay guess we're spending the night here okay cool we go to this you know cheap hotel they actually have a TV. We end up watching Nemo. It was nice. it was a nice, it was a nice night. Anyways, get up the next morning, finally on our way to Laos. We cross the border. Um, and then the minibus uh just stops and they're like, Okay, like this is it. You're here. And we're like, this isn't Luang Prabang. <laughs> 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 so we're in this A meter into (laughs) Laos. (laughs) You're here. (laughs) Goodbye. Please leave this bus. (laughs) So we we get dropped off. We're in this town. We don't even know the name of it. There's no one around. It's like probably 2 p.m. So people are like, you know, on their nap time or break Mm -hmm. time or whatever. No local to be found or seen. Uh, And we're like, how do we get to Luang Prabang? So I'm like let's go to the city hall. <laughs> so we go to the city hall. We literally like knock on the door of city hall. And this man comes out. Uh, and obviously like they don't speak any English. So we try very, very, you know, through sign language. Uh, those are the best, the best travel stories, right? So I'm like, we are trying to get to Luang Prabang. What is the way, best, easiest way to get there? And he's like, Oh, probably by Slow Boat. And I was like, oh, perfect. I love... I've always wanted to go to Slow Boat. You know, those like beautiful um, Instagram pictures of yep, slowboats Down the Mekong River. Yep, yep. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. Who do I talk to to get on a Slow Boat? He's like, oh, go down to the river. <laughs> so I'm like, all right. So we go down to the river and we see this woman... And I'm like, Bo, <laughs> can you get us to Lang Prabang? And she's like, oh, like, my husband's sleeping. <laughs> you can It's too late. And I was like, please, can you wake up your husband? We really need. So background to the story, we were only going to have, unfortunately, a week in Laos. So we were pretty pressed for time. And we're like, we can't spend, like, time in this. It's was probably a lovely town. It's just not where we were planning on, on going. Or... Your heart was set on Luang
0: for Prevay. Exactly. We needed to exactly. get
1: there. We needed to get there. And I'm a pretty impatient person, so, you know, and <laughs> a very ambitious and motivated person at that time. So I was yes. like, I had a plan, and it was going to happen. So Lady goes to actually, like, wake up her husband. And husband comes, and he's like, it's too late like, I can't take you. It's, like, a five-hour slow boat ride. Uh, I can't... It's it's gonna be dark before we get there. And I was, like, no, like, please, sir. Like, it's only, whatever, 2 p.m. Like, it'll be okay. <laughs> um, and he's, like, okay, fine. It's gonna cost, like, this amount of money. And obviously. You get Asia Brain, and you're like, this is too expensive. <laughs> um, so he was like, Well, that's what it is. Like, you woke me up from my nap, screw you. And I was like, That's really fair enough. You know what? I'm gonna round up all the tourists in this town, see if there are any, and see if they wanna to come to Wang Prabang with us. So me and my friend literally approached these couples. All of them were couples, interestingly enough. And we're like, do you want to come to Luang Prabang with us? Like, it's awesome there, and we can get a deal if there's a bunch of us, and it'll be a really scenic route. (laughs) Please, like, please, like, pleading with them. We ended up finding two... like and i think it was an australian couple who were really cool and then a pretty uh reclusive <laughs> finnish couple who like did not talk to us but whatever um if they came but they came so whatever we finally after you know rounding everyone up i go back to the boat uh driver conductor whatever <laughs> um and i'm like dude <laughs> conductor. <laughs> And I'm like, dude, we're going. And he was, like, shocked. He was like, okay, cool. The craziest thing was that, first of all, we caught the most incredible sunset I've ever seen in my life. Um, hashtag no filter. <laughs>
0: like, Amazing. I've seen this photo. It really is incredible. Yeah, yeah. Too bad this is a podcast. <laughs> Maybe I'll make it the image for the episode. For the Auschwitz <laughs> episode. <laughs> good point, good point. Okay. <laughs>
1: Um, and I kid you not we get to Luang Prabang it literally turned dark as soon as we got there and we knew the boat had no lights so it was literally like no washroom breaks like we need to get there I have no idea if that man ever made it back to his home or whether he stayed the night in Luang Prabang (laughs) Um, but that was, that was that. But
0: you were in Luang Prabang, (laughs) which was all that was important. (laughs) You made it. And you're right, Luang Prabang is actually amazing.
1: It's pretty cool. And the food was awesome.
0: So I need to just share like a quick story because you've really inspired me to think about my own slow boat experiences Mm -hmm. in Laos. And um, we did the classic like slow boat from Luang Prabang up to Thailand, Mm -hmm. which is like two full days and you don't know this but like you're on the slow boat for like 14 hours every day it gets pretty boring really fast you think that it's (laughs) gonna be like fun and beautiful the whole time but it's actually just like really boring it's pretty but like after an hour or two you're like okay I know what the Mekong River looks like now we started singing songs
1: (laughs) Like, really weird ones.
0: (laughs) I've heard of, like, some of these slow boats turning into, like, party boats because there's all these foreigners on them. But we were, like, the only foreigners on ours. It was just, like, us us with a bunch of Laotian people. And Luke and I, like, got really stir-crazy on this boat. And um, because we'd been traveling long-term we'd gotten to the point where I was plucking Luke's nose hairs with tweezers (laughs) in like hostile dorm rooms. But because we were so bored, like Luke was just like, thinking about these nose hairs and he's like can you pluck my nose hair right now and I was like "Eh, okay and so next thing I know I've like got these tweezers and I'm like plucking these nose hairs out and he's like gasping and like making these hilarious faces and we think that no one is paying any attention to us but then Luke's like look over there and I look to the front of the boat and there's like 20 Laotian people staring at us some of them laughing (laughs) others just looking like incredibly confused (laughs) and this is one of my most cherished memories of the slow boat (laughs) So anyways, thank you for coming on. I feel like this was a great discussion. I hope that our listeners learned some things about Holocaust tourism. Do you have anything you want to say to finish up?
1: Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Yeah, I think think we had a pretty thorough discussion. And hopefully, if people want to learn more, they can... Get at us on the social media. Oh yeah, Pina Travels. Yep,
0: you can reach me at, at Pina Travels on Instagram. You can also check out my website, which is www.pinatravels.ca. So just a bit of housekeeping. We would love to get you, our listeners, involved. Um, so we're inviting you to send in a voice clip. You can share with us your notable travel stories from the mishaps to the fun times, or you can share your thoughts regarding a topic that we've debated, or you can just say hi. So head over to our Facebook to record and send your voice clip via Messenger, Um, and you may be featured on our show. FYI, to find our Facebook page, just search Alpaca My Bags, and it should come right up. Um, And we would really appreciate it if you rate like and subscribe oh and comment just like show us some love just show us some love that would be great or some constructive criticism absolutely if you think that we're like totally wrong tell us at us we want to know and we want to talk this out with you so you know how to reach us get at us is that a good ending? I don't know
1: I don't think it was a thorough ending (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, thank you for listening. Um, Our episodes come out every other Wednesday, so tune back in um, two weeks from now on Wednesday to hear our next episode. Thank you.